even though at times it can seem like teens get pushed through some sort of cookie-cutter template, it is important to remember that they are all individuals. Each young person is unique and will approach things in a different way. However, we seem to have comfortably adopted a view that a normal exists, albeit within certain parameters, certainly when it comes to studying and education. And this, I believe, is how we've structured the mainstream system. But how does that work for those who are further away from average? And importantly, what can mainstream learn from those outliers? Hello, and welcome to the Study Sessions podcast. I'm Nathan, the founder of The Study Buddy, and your host. In this, our second season of the podcast, we're following six very different students as they head to their GCSEs in 2021. Each week, I catch up with these teams to see how things are going in a one-to-one coaching session. Then, with a panel of experts in our weekly podcast, we discuss some of the issues that come up. They could be broad themes, such as motivation or managing mental health, or they could be quite focused, such as how best to revise for a specific subject. But these are normal teams, so you can be sure that we'll be covering topics that young people up and down the country will face. So, if you're a parent, carer or a teacher, be sure to subscribe. In this episode, we're thinking about autism and special needs, specifically the impact that it has on those young people, and also what lessons there might be for for all parents when it comes to supporting their teens. This week, I'm thrilled to be joined by Justine Gennady, Lynn McCann and Georgina Durant. Justine is mum to Hayden, who has autism and other related conditions, but has told me she considers her neurotypical daughter to be the difficult teen in the family. Georgina has created and runs the award-winning Sen Resources blog. She's also an author and a tutor. Lynn is the founder of Reach Out ASC. And Reach Out are autism specialist teachers who provide support, training, advice and resources. Lynn's also an independent consultant and an author. Thank you all for joining me. One of the students that I'm lucky enough to be following in this season has recently had her diagnosis of autism confirmed. And I say lucky because she is a genuine pleasure to chat to each week. Robin's engaged and engaging, she's self-aware and she has plenty to say for herself and not afraid to share her views. I'm ashamed to say that I was a bit taken aback to find out about her autism because she wasn't like I would have expected her to be, based on the stereotypes. But that led me to question not only where these stereotypes came from, but also why we immediately see special needs and autism as an issue. Here is a teen girl much like any other. She's an individual who wants to fulfil her potential. She has some specific challenges that she faces. For example, she told me about a maths test that she took when she wasn't able to answer any of the questions because the student next to her was constantly clicking her pen and she just couldn't get over that distracting noise. And she also struggles with English language, where one of the major areas is to consider how a writer wants the audience to feel. But at the same time, this week's big news was that she was commended in a creative writing competition with a poem she'd written. With more than 800 teens entering, she came second, which is a fantastic achievement by anyone's standards. And I asked her, somewhat naively in retrospect, how she found the experience of writing for others when she finds it so difficult, if not impossible, to empathise. For me, it's just sort of finding something that does stick. So I've probably tried, like, I've probably had like 50 different ideas. I mean, that was like the one thing that stuck. So it was very difficult in the first place. 
Um, but I'm not a psychopath, so I do have feelings. <laughs> um, so <laughs> um, I just have to base it off how I think. And then I think it, like, the problem is, is seeing how other people think. What's also remarkable about Robin is that she's homeschooled. I can sort of see which which ways of studying work for me a bit more because at school you don't really have too much control of how how you do things. You just go to a class and you do what the teacher says and that's it. Whereas I have been able to experiment and, and see, right, that doesn't work for me, that does work for me. So I've been able to try an online class, right, that doesn't work for me. I'm much better suited to sort of working by myself in a quiet environment and just sort of experimenting sort of right what where does it work for me better what exactly how do I prefer writing it all down do I prefer doing it like this do I do it like that it's just I've many hours to fill that I can experiment and just go right, I'm going to try doing this today I'm going to do this this way and or maybe I'll take notes like this maybe I'll do it like that well that doesn't really work I'll try it again like that and so there's just so much freedom to just because at school, you had, you had an hour and a half to just cram as much information into the book as possible and then run off to the next class and do it all over again. Right, so this one, I can actually just take time to see what I'm writing. And under her own steam, she's studying to a high level, has taken a part-time data entry job and also volunteers at the local museum. Now, these are the kinds of traits that many parents would be thrilled to be able to list of their own children. So why is it then that children with special educational needs are not able to flourish? And what lessons can we learn? So Justine, if I can, I'd quite like to start with you and just ask you to tell us a little bit about Hayden. Um, Hayden... It's obvious that Hayden's on the spectrum when you speak to him, which going back to Robin and girls, they mask it really, really well, which is why it often takes longer for them to be diagnosed than, than the male counterparts than boys. Hayden's very intelligent, but struggles on the social side and str- struggles with so many things. Um, and he, like a lot of autistic people, he doesn't have um, nous. So a lot of things that most children will just, adapt to, take on board, just somehow know how to do. Everything has to be taught to Hayden. He's, he's a great kid. He, he, he really wants to succeed. He really wants to fit in. He doesn't. Um, but, you know, he's, he's, he's trying his hardest. Lynn, listening to Justine talk about Hayden there, I could actually, I think I could apply that to more or less any child that I've spoken to, that they all have those um, nuances or foibles. Um, certainly my own son lacks nous, um, if, I'm, if I'm understanding what you mean by that, Justine. Um, so, so sort of a lack of common sense. So how different is it, Lynn, for, um, for children who are diagnosed with autism as opposed to any other child? It's interesting what you said earlier about you had preconceptions. And um, one of the things is that we often thought that autism was only a boy thing. And uh, we are finding more and more that that girls have been misdiagnosed and missed because of this masking that Justine mentioned. One of the things we know that autism is, is not a set of behaviours, which is what it was always measured about beforehand, but actually a way the brain is wired up, the way the brain works and experiences and thinks about and perceives the world. 
So one of the things that we know about autistic people, and a lot of the young people that I work with will, will explain this to me as we work with them, is that when they see a situation, they find it really hard to pick up the clues and the cues that are there socially to be able to read what's going on. And that has a knock-on effect in terms of it makes them very anxious because they can't then predict what they might need to do in that situation. So it's kind of that sort of difficulty in reading what's going on around them. It could be people's facial expressions. It could be, you know, their body language or just all the nuances of language. You know, people don't say what they mean, do they? <laughs> and having to pick up what that means isn't very obvious. So we can often say autistic people are literal, but it's because they kind of see language as doing what you said. They've not picked up the older sort of nuances and meaning around it. I'm not saying that teenagers will learn these things, and I won't go on too long, but girls and boys who work in mainstream schools, you know, they try really, really hard to pick up these things. They work so hard. And then it has a knock-on effect on their academic things because they're already very, very stressed um, with the social world. And sometimes some of them find the academic world a real oasis of calm in amongst all the other stuff. Absolutely. I think the learning's easy, especially with rote learning. Um, Hayden walked primary school because of the rote learning. Just learn and repeat, not a problem. But it's the hidden meanings. And yes, they put so much effort into going to school every single day. High alert from the moment they leave the house to the moment they get home often contributes to behavioural problems at home. And they're an absolute saint at school. Because we see that in... in all other kinds of walks of life as well, don't we? That the, the level, there's something external that causes an anxiety with stereotypically with teen girls, they need to fit in, whether they um, look right, have the right um, clothes and badges and that kind of thing. And we've seen that that level of anxiety can have a real detriment on so many other things, including um, including learning. I want to come back to, um, if I may, the uh, autism and um, special education needs in general. And I, this may not be the last time I'm going to ask your forgiveness um, because of my ignorance and naivety. But Georgina, I wonder if you could explain to, uh, explain to me where, uh, or rather, what special educational needs are and how um, autism in particular fits into that but also what other um, conditions we might um, hear about. So special educational needs or SEN as people refer to it are often SEND with the D on the end, which refers to disability as well. So it's basically a learning difficulty or a disability or and or a disability. So they may have a learning difficulty and a disability. Um, and it's just things that are get, making things more difficult for them. So it could be a visual impairment, it could be a hearing impairment, it might be that they've got dyslexia or they've got autism. There's a whole range of different things that could be their learning difficulty and as a result they'll need extra support in school and I was a SENCO in a school, um, so I was a special education needs coordinator in a secondary school and it was my job to make sure that these children get the extra support that they need. Um, and some of these children might have an ECHP, which is an education healthcare plan, which is like a legal document that outlines the additional support they will need that we have to provide them. Um, but there's a lot of children that have special needs in school that won't have one of these. Um, and it's about all the adjustments we make to make the learning environment and the exams suitable for them so that they're not disadvantaged. And I think that's the key bit is... Um, it's not their fault that they've got all these extra things. They need to we need to make sure it's a level playing field for everybody. Um, and if you're talking specifically about autism, if you're thinking about 
exams, for example, like they're sat there, the ticking clock might be nothing to everybody else sat there, but that ticking clock in the corner of the room could cause, could be the difference with them getting their GCSE result that they need or not. And it's thinking about it from every single person, individual point of view and what they actually specifically need, not the umbrella of their specific need, but their, their actual needs. Um, so not they've got autism, we need to do this, thinking that is so-and-so, this is what they need and this is what we need to put in place. So really, yeah, thinking about all the different ways you can adjust and accommodate for these children to make it a level playing field, I think is really important. Am I right in thinking that this is a, a continuum, that there is a, a, a sort of a long spectrum, I guess, of people, and I really, really, really don't want to use the word normal, um, but I guess mainstream, that a point at which a child who might struggle with reading just struggles with reading rather than it tipping into something that's a, a special educational need, as Georgina was describing. I think you know, that kind of pins down to individual teachers' awareness of what we call differentiation, doesn't it? That actually in their teaching style and their teaching approach, they should be looking at a whole continuum of needs and that one size doesn't fit all. Unfortunately, we do have a curriculum that does try to fit people into one size fit all, and I'm not going to get political, <laughs> but it, it is a dis, it then disadvantages those children who don't actually fit into that box. And so, you know, every individual teacher, according to the law, is a teacher of special educational needs. And therefore, they should be looking at the whole needs within a classroom. And as a secondary teacher, I do realise how enormous that is when you've got five different classes in a day. But actually, there are some very good um, some practices that can actually just um, help all children. And it is about good communication, about good structure, about clearly helping people understand things. And then you have the individual things. Like, so if you've got a, a, children, a child who's dyslexic, you may need to give them extra support with their reading, for example, or a, you know, a child who's got a visual impairment and you might need it on bigger paper. So you put those extra things in as well. So, yeah, it is a continuum, but it's actually part of the job. You know, it's kind of what you go into teaching for should be. Um, and then there are those children who need those needs, have needs sort of beyond what you can do as a class teacher. And therefore, that is the point where you get those you know, extra help within school or through an education, health and care plan, uh, which should provide some extra resources, either in equipment or people to help just give that extra support for a child. We've come across it before, the, the, the phrase you used of one size doesn't fit all and, and how teachers are, uh, by law actually, which is interesting because I had um, absolutely no idea, but are um, geared to special educational needs or the needs of individual pupils. And I think that's something that it really, really interests me that, that children are individuals regardless of whether or not they're on a, um, a, a spectrum um, or have a diagnosis um, or not, they are individuals. And teachers, we've seen, are really, really keen to, to nurture and nourish the individual pupil, but the system itself isn't geared to that. So you can, as you say, uh, work with, with children on an individual basis, but because we are focused um, through this podcast specifically on the exam years, they will they'll come back to the fact that they've got to be ranked, um, unfortunately, against everyone else. How does that, that sort of dilemma of teachers teaching individuals, but schooling, grading, uh, I guess, the whole, that whole year group against each other, uh, work as a parent, Justine? Can you, do you see 
do you see differences, I guess, in, in approach? Um, yeah, if I'm understanding the question correctly, it's... I think we're very fortunate with Hayden um, from a parenting point of view because he is bright. Um, he just can't quite um, meet his potential. Um, but then the flip side of that is there's quite a lot of pressure because he's often been quoted as being the brightest boy in the year, um, but he's coming in at fours and fives because he doesn't reach his potential. They can't quite... Again, it goes back to these um, this nous, these nuances. Um, he does not know how to study and getting him to rewrite things does not work for him. Um, it's a waste of his time. He's written it once. He, he cannot analyse. He cannot. He can repeat and he can he can store information, but he cannot um, analyse and, and come up with the right answers. So from his point of view, the only way he can really achieve anything is almost figuring out every typical type of question that is going to be asked and having an answer for that and be able to recognise the similar question in the exam. So one of the things that Robin was talking about while she was at school was that there was an enormous pressure on her from her school to get numbers, to get grades, which she really, really found uncomfortable. Uh, it was an awful lot of pressure and it seemed almost like a distraction, I guess, because it, it didn't seem to be what it should have been about for her. But also, that, and I think going back to Lynn's point, because there's uh, an awful lot to get through in the curriculum because of the fact that teachers and this would have been before her autism diagnosis so before she was having any dedicated support she um she was being taught in a way that i guess made sense to the teacher and for the majority of that class but it just wasn't working for her when she stopped with mainstream school and then went to homeschooling she actually talked to me um about how she was able to experiment with different ways of of learning and different times of learning as well i mean sometimes she just wasn't English just wasn't going to work for her today and so she'd do her statistics and I think sounding very much like Hayden incredibly bright I mean she the scores that she'd be she's looking at are incredible but she's now starting to realize that potential much more and I'm not suggesting that that children should be homeschooled what I'm looking at is I guess how can parents support the teachers in trying to find these ways through now Georgina your uh, blog obviously um the, the Ascend Resources blog, are there, are there things that parents should be doing differently or is this a matter of perspective? I think key is communication. I think teachers have to remember the experts aren't often the teachers, it's actually the parents and sometimes the young person themselves, if they're able to, they are the ones that know the most about their autism. They, they are the ones that um, have the knowledge about themselves and I think that's key is the communication between parents and school and discussing what works at home and what works at school and making sure when you found something that is working you're mirroring it at home and at school and I think we've got to be flexible. I think we need to allow us to think outside the box it might be that you know something like I saw this brilliant video the other day of this child who was doing their work at home I think they're in America but they were sat at a desk and they were really struggling I think they were doing some online learning via Zoom and they were really really struggling as lots of children do with Zoom lessons and their parent had a fantastic idea to put them actually on a bike they were sat on a bike at the screen at the desk and they put <laughs> they put little props at the back of the wheels so they couldn't go anywhere but they were sat on a bike pedaling whilst they were doing the lesson and for that for them that worked I'm not suggesting we let children bring bikes into schools but just thinking outside the box and if something works saying right well this worked at home let's try this in school is there any way we can adapt what we're doing to make it 
to work because everybody was on the same page we all want the best for the child the parent wants the best for the child the child wants the best for themselves in terms of the grade and so does the teacher so I think it's about communication and I often I found as a Senko a lot of the time parents feel they can't ring you up and feel the there's a bit of a barrier there and I would love I would have loved people to have rang me up more and said this is the issue we're facing what can we do how did you get them to do some study at school when I'm not managing and likewise if I could ring them up and say how come they're doing the revision fantastic at school whereas in this lesson they're not doing it and I think yeah I think it's communication I think that is a, a massive part of it and if we all talk about it and work out these solutions together I think that's the way forward. And an idea that we've heard before that actually parents are experts in their children. So yeah. teachers know content, they know how to teach it. But actually a teacher probably wouldn't come up with the idea without knowing a child really, really well to sit them on a bike while, <laughs> while they're in the lesson. Now, I accept that, that as you say, that might be um, a bit distracting, it's might be impractical for any number of really, really good <laughs> But while there's an opportunity to do it, the, this parent had a genius idea. I know how to help combat um, whatever obstacle the, um, the child was facing. Lynn, should there be more freedom to experiment with how we go about doing these oh, kinds yes. of things? <laughs> um, I work with a number of high schools and actually I work with them because they are willing to be flexible and we come up with all sorts of ideas. So some children do need movement and they need to fiddle in order to be able to sort of regulate those sort of sensory systems in order to concentrate. So it can be anything from a bit of blue tack to we have in one of my schools, the boy was allowed to have a little pass out of class and he had a room he could go to to flap. And he really needed to sort of flap his arms, wave them around so he could then regulate his anxiety and go back into class and concentrate. But because the school allowed him to that, you know, we're getting him through those high school years. Um, other times we've, we've harnessed the child's special interests and we've given them little breaks to do that. And other things that they do flexibly is sometimes reduce the timetable so instead of having to do homework, because the homework for some is just enormously difficult, they might have a homework lesson in school and like a home or a homework club or um, a place to go at lunchtime that's quieter than being in the yard with everybody else. So they're not getting that social demand that's, again, anxiety levels um, go so that, you know. So I just think the flexibility that I've seen in mainstream high schools is amazing. And that willingness to do that. Um, and, and even come, like go with some of the crazy ideas that I come up with sometimes. So we had one boy who was really interested in taking things apart. So we got him a box with um, an old laptop and a screwdriver. And just, you know, when he, when he needed a break, he just went and <laughs> unscrewed this laptop. But they allowed that. And to see children going through school with those adaptations, they can make all those difference. And as said, been said already, knowing their sensory needs, so, you know, for some children who are really hypersensitive to noise, being in a classroom is torturous. You know, every sniff, every cough, every scratch of all the pens and the, every move of a chair or a table is just like, like bullets in their head. So we've had children wearing headphones and being allowed to listen to calming music while they've been in class. But it's a school that will allow that as opposed to I've come across schools who say, no, we can't do anything like that. And I would advise parents find a flexible school. Um, who will communicate with you, who don't put barriers in your way, because that is going to be key to your child's survival and success, really, through high school. So, Justine, can you, do you have um, sort of similar approaches that 
whether it's at school or whether it's at home with Hayden, do you find that you've sort of baked in flexibility, even if you um, hadn't thought about it like that before? Yes. I mean, secondary school has been a real eye opener for us. For us. He was in a rural primary school um, and they weren't as willing to be as flexible. I understand it's harder when you've got smaller kids that perhaps don't have behavioural issues, but are noisy kids are noisy when they're younger they haven't got the discipline um secondary has been amazing the senko we have at his school the willingness they are you know they, they have to to go above and beyond and to adapt to to what hayden may or may not benefit from to try it to try it they're always i mean they, we meet regularly i like many mums work so it's not always that easy um but they meet regularly hayden goes to homework club well starting this week and which Hayden's really excited about I'm not so much because I have to go and pick him up which is an hour out my way (laughs) no thing to do he wants to go every night we've managed to sort of um (laughs) let him choose two of course he's gone for his two favorite subjects which kind of defeats the object you know we'll, we'll let him go with maths and computer studies just so he gets a feel for it then we'll try and push him to the subjects he's not so good at um that 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 perhaps is one of his biggest barriers he's happy to study computers but he already knows it all um try and push him towards english and he's like yeah you know what not so sure um i think i said before when i was furloughed during lockdown it was a blessing in disguise because if someone sits with him he will do it. And he loves it. He loves that attention. He craves it. And he does so well. But of course, no school has the manpower to have a dedicated, well, no secondary school, a dedicated um, uh, teacher, to, uh, supply teachers, um, what, what's the word, teaching assistant to sit with Hayden. And I don't have the time when I get home. Um, so he's struggling a lot with self-study, but we are trying to adapt as best we can, getting to do it in the kitchen not upstairs in his bedroom we've got him a laptop now so we can't use the excuse of yes but the computer's upstairs um letting him have those breaks not keeping him sort of pinned down drinking water drink as much water as you can because hydration is so key to an active brain um there's just constantly trying new approaches some work some don't I like that. I like that idea a lot. And again, when I um, look at my own children, as I tend to, my only point of reference, um, Emily, who's neurotypical, uh, is someone who, well, is conscientious. So she'll she'll want to do the work. She's a people pleaser. Actually, she can very easily lose focus because of the cat's gone wandering past or she'll do something else. And I find myself sitting with her as when I can during um, the early stages of lockdown. And then she'd be more engaged in what she was doing mostly because um i could very easily ask her um what that was <laughs> and so i think there was an element of sort of underlying fear spiteful so-and-so is going to ask me a question at a moment's notice and as you say it's unfortunate you can't do that all the time um very very few people would be in a position to do it but the flexibility around actually we could spend some time just going back over it and similarly with jake looking at actually he needed time within a study period to go and check on his phone i mean this isn't this isn't a, an a need emotional or otherwise as as um as i would see it being a um very firmly middle-aged man um that this this need to go and check out who's snapped something or ticked up something else is is completely beyond me but it was really important to him and he, he would start getting twitchy i guess and anxious and as we've seen, that level of anxiety is a real barrier, isn't it, to, um, to 
to learning and doing more. But what I love about what Justine's been talking about there is actually some things will work and some things will not work. And actually as parents and teachers, educators, we shouldn't kick ourselves because actually it hasn't, hasn't worked, it's gone wrong. It's just um, another way not to invent a light bulb, um, I guess, as, as that cliche goes. Well, they work for a little bit and you think you've got a sus, but you don't. <laughs> then they stop working and you're back to the drawing board. <laughs> so Georgina, are there, um, where could people go to find out more um, sort of ideas? Are there, are there places where people can share or is it just a case of just have a go? Again, you, you know what will work and what won't for your children it's uh, I think different. I think there's lots of support groups aren't there I don't know if um if you're in any of them but there's lots of support groups especially on Facebook and the devil of social media but there are some lovely support groups for parents to discuss their needs and things that work and things that don't and then like you were saying about trying things out if somebody else has tried it out for you as well then it, it sort of solves a few problems there so I think yeah looking for these support groups and finding other parents who have children in the same year group who might also have an autism diagnosis and trying to discuss ways that they've tried and things that work for them um, and see if they work for you. So just getting ideas, I think, is, is key. And yeah, speaking to school and finding out what they're doing as well. One thing I'd like to say, if possible, and I really apologise for interrupting, but it's got to work for the parents as well. I used yeah. to try and do these things I heard online that were fantastic. And I just couldn't get my head social stories. Social stories were just meant to be the way forward with autism. And they were going to teach my wonderful son all these different social situations. And he was getting, I could not get my head around them. He could not get his head around them. We persevered. And I realised (laughs) there's no point. He's stressed. I'm stressed. Let's find a new way. So it's got to work for the parents as well. So I'm laughing because I've written a book of social stories and I agree with you totally. (laughs) They're not for everybody. (laughs) And I think they're very they're brilliant if they work. They're I'm often sure. very badly done as well. But yeah, they they don't work with everybody. There's just one thing in a whole toolbox of things. And so, talk to me about um, social stories in Lynn. Oh gosh, there is, my book is called Stories That Explain, and that's what they are. They they explain something to a child in a way that they can understand. So the first thing you need to know is the child's perspective, and often they're used to try and get what the adult wants to tell the child over. You know, I need you to know this, so I'm going to explain it to you. But it's totally the wrong way around it. It's got to be, okay, how is the child perceiving this situation? And how can I help explain it in a way that's going to help them manage it or cope with it better? And it's kind of that, really. And they can be written about anything, you know. um, But it's about the child's perspective, and and that's the place to start. I've got um, one on my website at the moment for um, transition back to school. So I had it up on my website in September for... Um, sort of going back to school and how things are going to be different and someone had written one for me about trying to help children understand what it's going to be different and it was it's Carol Gray isn't it from who um, invented these social stories I think in 1991 and she sort of pioneered the way for these stories to make children understand what's what's coming up and how to anticipate what's going to happen in a different situation so for them returning to school for example with potentially seeing the odd teacher wearing a mask or having to social distance having some guidelines in place to see what what's actually going to be expected them what they're going to see and how how they can anticipate what's going to happen because that can be quite difficult for autistic young children yeah, it's explaining the why isn't it why are they wearing the mask mm. you know and you, know, you yeah. have to keep it really simple and direct and not going because you can get very bogged down in waffle but yeah, as you say, Georgina, it's it's something that you target at helping them cope with a situation better and understand something better. And again, and I, I, what I'm finding remarkable is I, I keep thinking, why don't we just do this? Why don't we just do this for everyone? And there's a there's a bit of a, a bias, I guess, in my thinking 
for that. And it's um, in my uh, previous life before setting up um, the study buddy was that I worked a lot in diversity and inclusion uh, design uh, within a large bank. And part of that was looking at journeys on websites, for example, and you would designers design them against their own thinking. So how would I go about doing this? What looks good to me and how, um, and how would I think about moving from one step to another? Or you might do it based on your own preconceptions of your friends. So it, it tends to be, and it is getting better, absolutely, but it tends to be able-bodied people who've been through a degree of education um, who are then creating um, these journeys. So this whole idea of diversity and inclusion by design was that if you looked at the non-typical cases, so you looked at how someone who was visually impaired might interact with um, the website, if you looked at someone who was um, who had very, very low levels of literacy um, might uh, interact, someone with bipolar, someone um, stressed, all of these kinds of uh, situations, that what you do is you don't just fix a problem you create a you create a situation or a design that is better for absolutely everyone and my favorite example of these are, are revolving doors so revolving doors were designed by someone who could walk quite happily through a revolving door and they'd push them but of course there are people who can't and so you then come up with a fix which is a normal door with a disabled button next to it so you if you're in a wheelchair you could come up to it push the button and the door would open but if you've ever seen them, and I am boring enough that I've looked, you'll find like parents with pushchairs who will be pushing the button because they can't get that through a revolving door. Or there'll be um, people that have been shopping and got loads of bags. So actually that, that design hack would have been so much better in the first place. Things like this, stories that um, would appear to me to be spoken from the perspective of uh, a team or a young person to explain a situation that might be causing them anxiety is a really good idea I mean, for everyone. My son would have liked that when he was transitioning. Um, my daughter, certainly I'm sure, would, um, would want them to. And as a parent, actually, I want to be able to help them and they don't necessarily get my perspective. And maybe, Justine, that's, um, that's some of the issues that you might have faced with the books that you've read before. Does, that, does it sound like the stories that you had before were more helping you to explain rather than explaining for Hayden? Or was it simply something that Hayden didn't? Hayden's a bit of an enigma. He's so autistic in so many ways. And definitely if you met him, you'd know. But in the same breath, one of his favourite things of the weekend to do, and it's one of the worst things he could possibly do from a mother's point of view, but is to go on the train on an adventure on his own and explore new things now autistic people shouldn't be doing that because they should like they like familiarity they like routine um he will plan the journey the autism side you know down to the end where he has to be to get the train he wants doesn't even want me to take him to the train station he wants to get the bus from the village to the train station um so i've always thought that perhaps some of these tools don't work for hayden because he has this non-autistic side he's always been um when he was a little boy he was an adult mind so I think a lot of the social stories for his age just didn't grab his attention. It, it, it's a funny thing. It's that sometimes it's just no, especially when I was younger, there was no way in. No matter which angle you went from, you couldn't get into his little brain. As he's matured, doors are opening left, right and centre and it's wonderful to see. I mean, lockdown was a blessing for Hayden in so many ways. My mate, uh, Maisie, my daughter, 
struggled not seeing her friends and everything, but Hayden really blossomed. Um, and so many mental doors opened and and he wants to learn he's open to learning now he's 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 open to maturing he wants to sit down with um, my husband his dad and and talk on a man-to-man level about man things he wants to be a better adult he wants to contribute to society where he's had absolutely no interest in that this time last year so um yeah um going back to not tools don't work for everyone it's not one size fits all wish there was um but just trial and error keep trying and like I said when that stops working find something else we'll try but don't give yourself a hard time about it no and that goes back I think to what Georgina was saying earlier which is that autism isn't an um, is an umbrella term for a collection of individuals which I, I guess is really where we're coming at this for for all of them, whether it's a, a level of dyslexia um, or autism or, or other um, conditions, is that actually the label in itself might be instructive because it might give clues, but it doesn't seem to me that it's actually necessarily helpful in really identifying um, one good path for an individual. I always felt it was a clinician just trying to tidy up a whole bunch of disorders and conditions they didn't know what to do with. So just shove them in the autistic spectrum box. When in doubt, but forgive me <laughs> I'm just a mum is there any truth in that Lynn oh, <laughs> it's a big question isn't it I think because our awareness of autism has just grown but also the, the the diagnostic criteria has widened as well in the last few years but I also think I hate the diagnostic criteria because it's all negative and deficit based whereas all the autistic young people and adults that I know are all brilliant people with their own personalities their own skills and potential all of them and just the fact that we're looking at deficits, I hate. So I, I very rarely talk about the diagnostic criteria, but there is this umbrella sort of um, set of as was, ways of seeing the world <laughs> that we call autism. And yes, it's, it's not a linear spectrum. So it's not like more or less autism. It's a very um, sort of circular spectrum in a way. And people are at different points on that, that spectrum. Um, and the joy of, I'm sure Georgina will say the same, the joy of our job is just meeting every single young person and thinking, wow, I can't wait to get to know you and your differences and your interests. And yeah, let's overcome some barriers with you. Let's work together on that. And um, you know, I just love the kids I work with and I love what they have to say about being them. And that's the great thing. I wish there was more of you guys out there. Unfortunately, not everyone's the same, but it's so lovely to hear you speak. There's so many old school teachers that see it as just naughty children. And that's tough. That's very tough, especially for the mother who no one goes into this thinking, yay, my child's been diagnosed. I mean, it's, it can be a blessing because you know something's different about your child and you don't know what it is. Um, but yeah, I've had a lot of battles with teachers that just keep telling me every day what Hayden did wrong, what Hayden did wrong, what Hayden did wrong. And I was like, yeah, I'm not going to punish him at home for something he did at school. And um, also tell me one thing he did right today because mm. I'm sure there's something you're not looking for it. But I think that that really, really brings to mind that um, that quote, Einstein quote, I think, of if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree it'll um, forever go around its life thinking it's stupid and i think that actually we we misuse that quote an awful lot but this is one of those examples isn't it actually we're just gauging against the wrong benchmark it's not whether you conformed to these kinds of things there are there are bound to be positives that need to be that need to be looked at and absolutely everything that lynn just talked about completely um is what i felt when chatting to robin and as i say i was 
genuinely, genuinely embarrassed at myself for any preconceptions that I would have had before talking to her because she is an absolute star. Genuinely look forward to chatting to her. And, um, and yeah, as I said, I, I'm not really sure why I expected something different. You can only hope that with, um, with increased exposure, with a change in language, uh, so Lynn, your company being um, Reach ASC, which is talking about conditions rather than disorders, and looking at something more positive, I presume, should help that, shouldn't it? Yeah, it is. And even then, the language is, is evolving because of autistic people themselves so there's a lot of surveys and things where and we've changed our language over a year so we've chosen autism spectrum condition because that felt a little bit more respectful but even as we talk about autism we are talking about people being autistic rather than a person with autism and that's comes out of autistic people them say, themselves saying, well, this is who I am. And it's not autism is not something I carry around in a suitcase, you know, something I've got with me. It is who I am. And I want, And I think it's actually getting over the barriers of respecting people for who they are that we need to deal with. And the language is just, I'm just choosing that because that's what is respectful for people. But I always ask, you know, what would you prefer, prefer me to use? Um, and that's kind of the best way forward. You know, being open, like, I'm not sure, but you tell me what you think and I will respect that. It's a good way to go ahead, isn't it? Georgina, are there, anything, are there any practical steps, I guess, that parents should be looking at when uh, faced with exams, should they go ahead this year, to, uh, to really give their children the best possible chance? Yeah, I think it's key to speak to the SENCO and see if your child has any access arrangements. So these are arrangements that are designed and regulated by the JCQ which is the Joint Council for Qualifications and these are reasonable adjustments to make the exams accessible. I think I spoke earlier about making it a level playing field and that's what these adjustments are there for and it might be that they get a scribe in an exam or they get extra time or they get a reader or rest breaks or maybe a word processor but I think it's really important to have that conversation and make sure you know if your child is going to get any of these because really importantly um if they're doing mock exams, they also need to have these for the mock exams so that they're having an accurate representation of what they're going to get in the real exam. So there's no point doing a mock exam or even a practice paper at home if you're not giving them that 25% extra time that they're going to get in the exam. And I think that's really, really key. Absolutely vital, I think, especially um, really good advice for the mocks and the past papers. If we end up in a situation this year as we did with last year's GCSE students where there are no final exams. Being able to evidence uh, is, is going to be key for, uh, for teachers and for exam centres. So that would seem uh, nothing short of eminently sensible to, um, to find out what you can and make every, um, every situation as if it was the, the final thing. From a parent's point of view, I just say be kind to yourself and um, embrace all those positive qualities that aren't always easy to see, but they're definitely, definitely always there that your your child with special education needs has. My thanks to Justine, Georgina, and to Lynn for taking the time to share their insights and a wealth of practical tips too. This is such an incredibly important topic. It isn't simply that a rigid, unimaginative and entrenched approach to learning is unhelpful to a great number of our people. It's that the alternative is beneficial to everyone. While this episode focused explicitly on special educational needs and very specifically autism, my big takeaway here is that these young people will likely find themselves confronted 
with exactly the same kinds of issues as their neurotypical peers. The significant difference is that their reactions and experiences may well be amplified. As a result, it's absolutely right to provide the specific support they need so that we can work towards a level playing field. However, at a high level, there's perhaps more commonality than there is difference. What we heard from our three guests was the overwhelming benefits to a flexible approach to learning, of experimenting to find the best way, and of not being afraid to get it wrong. And most important of all, and this is something that we've heard before, that communication between parents and school and students is of paramount importance. As a parent, I often catch myself saying, that's not how I used to do it when it comes to studying. But not only does that completely ignore the individual nuances in our children, it doesn't take into account how things are now so vastly different. Certainly when I was studying, there was no YouTube and you couldn't write on a Surface or an iPad. It's important to take the time to explore the alternatives and find which systems and methods work best. Whether that's in the way that you structure time and manage study, or actually how studying takes place. We should be fully prepared to adapt and even be a little inventive. While we might not go as far as rigging up a static bike in the kitchen, there's no reason not to suggest trying a study session standing up for a change, or maybe walk around reciting French verbs. The key is to strive to find what will work for your individual child and focus less on what isn't. Thank you for listening. I hope that you found this episode interesting and informative. If you did enjoy it, then it would be great if you could leave a five-star rating. It really does help us reach other parents looking at how they can support their own teens. Of course, sharing the link to this and other episodes on your social media weapon of choice is always very much appreciated. There will be another episode next week, so please don't forget to subscribe to the Study Sessions podcast.